be clear. It's Rochapo, and it's me and Matt, but joining us uh, this week is the all-time Chapo Trap House reigning guest appearance champion. It's our international global correspondent, Derek Davison. Derek, what's up? Hey, guys. Uh, thank you for having me on. Normally, these days in the afternoons, I just kind of go around sniffing strange women's hair. So, uh, you know, I didn't really have anything else to do. Uh, so I'm, I'm happy to be here. You're a, you're a tactile guy. You know, that's, it's through touch that we connect and learn about the world and our fellow human beings. I'm a hugger. What can I say? <laughs> Where's Derek's hug at? <laughs> that makes me realize that Johnny Smith from the Dead Zone would get me too very quickly because he, need, he needed to touch people in order to know their future. I've and got, it would be funny if he tried to justify it and say, look, oh, I'm not trying to cop a feel. I just want to know if you're going to die soon. <laughs> well, can you imagine if Joe Biden had the dead zone abilities, how many times he would have like foreseen the apocalypse from all the people he's been hugging? Oh, yeah. No, he knows exactly how we all die. For <laughs> yeah. Sure. Uh, no, but like particularly in D.C., like how many Martin Sheen type characters from that film yeah. uh, are surrounding Joe Biden on a day to day basis? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, Derek, um, we'll, we'll, we can talk about we can talk about your your hugging regimen later, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know you, you know you're you're the guy who uh, stay you know obviously we've we've been obsessing over you know the 2020 election here in America and the 2016 election that already happened <laughs> you know we we talk a lot about that we have a good time but it's easy to forget you know politics and things are going on in other countries as well. So there's some there's some elections going on around the world. There's some there's some interesting uh, doings going on right now. And why don't we begin by talking about an old favorite, you know, uh, one of the original supporters of the show, one of our first, you know, favorite countries, uh, Turkey. Turkey is having a, a rather wild election right now. Yes. Well, they're they're local elections, so they're not as. A, uh, serious from a from a practical standpoint, uh, as you know, say a presidential election or a, a parliamentary election or anything like that. Uh, but uh, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's Justice and Development Party uh, has suffered uh, a couple of major setbacks. They lost the mayor's race in Ankara pretty handily. Uh, they lost, it appears, the mayor's race in Istanbul by a fairly narrow margin. Uh, AKP has had both of those mayoralties uh, basically since its inception, and its kind of Islamist predecessor parties uh, controlled those mayoralties for a few years before uh, AKP became a thing. Uh, Erdogan himself was mayor of Istanbul in the 90s. That's kind of his, that was his first kind of high profile political job. Uh, so it's embarrassing on the one hand for AKP to lose these uh, uh, these posts. Uh, and there are some reasons, none of them hugely impactful, but there are some reasons why it hurts AKP on a, on a more practical level. There are obviously – uh, you know, patronage networks and, and political networks that, that revolve around these large city mayor's offices, uh, that are, have been important to the party in the past. And now presumably they're going to lose access to those things. Uh, and, you know, there's some indication that, uh, 
by virtue of the way that they won these elections, that that the opposition may actually be getting its act together. One of the things that's kept AKP in power for so long uh, has been that Turkey's opposition is sort of divided. It's kind of incompetent. They don't really know how to work together to counter uh, AKP's dominance. Uh, and, you know, there's some indication that they may be starting to figure some things out. Mostly the results here seem to have been about the Turkish economy, which is uh, more or less in the toilet. Uh, Erdogan made what I think is was a mistake in nationalizing the elections instead of letting uh, his party's candidates kind of run their own thing. He turned it into a referendum on AKP and its power. Uh, and at a time when, you know, as they say, it's the economy, stupid, uh, you know, the Turkey's economy is really struggling and people are unhappy about that, especially in the big cities where they are already predisposed kind of to uh, to not like Erdogan so much. Uh, and so I think, you know, the the result here reflects mostly uh, the frustration over the economy. Uh, and the, the 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 people who just won, uh, like the mayors of Istanbul and Ankara, are like, how would you do, like, what is their party? Are they the same party or how would you characterize the opposition here? Yeah, they're both they're both from the main opposition party, the Republican People's Party or CHP. Uh, and, you know, CHP is kind of. Uh, it's hard to pin down what its ideology is anymore. I mean, they've been out of power for so long. They're sort of the original Turkish political party. They go all the way back to uh, Ataturk and the founding of the Republic, and they kind of have tried to embody his principles of secularism and uh, republicanism and, you know, kind of authoritarianism to some degree when they've been in power. Um, but nowadays, I mean, you know, the party is, is basically like – we're not AKP. If you don't like AKP, vote for us. I mean, that's that's been their message. And it's it's hard because AKP has been so dominant in Turkish politics. Everybody else, all the other parties are kind of revolving around them and, and bouncing off of them. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're, you know, it's kind of a comeback to some degree for CHP, which has been struggling for a while. Uh, as I say, the Ankara election, they seem to have won pretty handily. Istanbul is uh, was won by a, a much smaller margin, and AKP is going to challenge that result, and uh, it's it's narrow enough that it's not it's not set in stone yet. I mean, I did see some some reports of some like you know uh, electoral shenanigans going on, like some some ballot stuffing and things of that nature. Yeah, well, I mean that that's kind of become par for the course. I mean, Erdogan's uh uh what they call an illiberal democrat, which means uh he likes to have votes, but he doesn't necessarily care if they're fair or free. He's he's uh, not he's not a classical liberal, you know. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's part of the he's part of the intolerant left. <laughs> His, I mean, his his strategy really is more to rig elections before they happen by denying uh, media time to his opponents and throwing some of his opponents in prison for dubious reasons. Um, and then, you know, when it gets time to the vote to for vo voting, you know, he tends to let things play out. Uh, but uh, I don't think he's above 
doing a little a, a little ballot box stuffing here and there. And there were reports of irregularities. Uh, interestingly, AKP has been crying about irregularities and saying they've been cheated in these votes, which when you're the ruling party and you've dominated national politics for, uh, you know, almost two decades now, uh, it's it's hard to really make that stick. Like you, 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 if anybody's rigging the election, it's it's AKP. Yeah, it's like when you control like all of the functions of democracy, it's a little hard to uh, complain that your opponents are stealing it from you. Right, exactly. I mean, I would, I would exactly. like to take a very close look at some of those, uh, some of those, some of those voting rolls in Istanbul because I'm, I'm, I'm suspecting that a lot of the people that voted AKP are, are in fact stray cats. <laughs> you say that, but I have good authority that most of the people who voted for CHP are crypto Armenians, <laughs> and as we all know, their votes don't count either. <laughs> it's either crypto Armenians or crypto Jews. That's the next one that'll that'll come yeah. out. But as a, like Erdogan, still firmly, firmly in control of Turkey, uh, does, doesn't seem like he's going anywhere anytime soon. Oh no, uh, yeah, I mean he's he's got almost all the levers of power in the state centered in his office now. It's very hard to uh, it would be very hard to move him out. Um, what I think, you know, if there is a long term implication for this election uh, that has to do with Erdogan, it's Mostly, again, that the economy is is his Achilles heel, uh, that his typical sort of campaign message, which is kind of angry nationalism, doesn't work terribly well when he doesn't have a, a kind of imminent threat that he can point to and get people riled up about. Um, and, you know, in the long run, if the opposition can build on – uh, this and and it could be maybe the first kind of small step in uh, building momentum for them. Then you know it could have some long term impact. But uh, I, I think it's uh, I, I've seen a lot of takes that like oh this is this is it it's like the beginning of the end for Erdogan. I I think that's that's overstating it quite a bit. Yeah, just I mean as soon as he gets a chance to steamroll the Kurds in northern Syria, that's gonna bump him right back up probably he's probably pissed he couldn't do that right before the election i i, I yeah that's probably i mean all, he might have wanted to save that for a bigger election yeah I don't know, yeah but, i mean uh, he, certainly he's got that in his bag i mean he did do that the last time there was an national election yes, right he did uh, yes so like yeah just basically started a war um, last the last yeah. couple of times i mean he's gone after the pkk to help himself politically and then you know he went into uh northern syria and has kind of gone after the syrian kurds to do the the same thing um and like as far as um american the american foreign policy community and planners go i mean wh like how where do they really stand on on erdogan because i mean he seems like an interesting case where he's you know, Turkey's a NATO member, but he's also like this severely authoritarian ruler who has allied himself with uh, against the United States and with Russia, at least vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Syria. Yes. I mean, he's exactly what makes it especially weird is he's exactly the kind of guy, kind of a pompous, blowhard, right wing dictator wannabe uh, that Donald Trump loves. Uh, and there's evidence that like on a personal level, I think the two of them. 
get along pretty well. I mean, when Trump announced back in December that he was pulling all of the U.S. soldiers out of Syria to everybody's surprise in Washington, it was right after he got off the phone with Erdogan. And I, I think, you know, they were just shooting the shit, basically, and, you know, being pals. And Trump, you know, said, hey, you're my pal. I can do this for you. I can do you a favor. And he made that announcement. So, I mean, I think on a one-to-one level, they actually get along okay. Uh, but Erdogan has worn very thin with the the rest of the foreign policy establishment. Uh, the big thing right now is that he's moving forward with the purchase of uh, Russia's new S-400 air defense system. Uh, he's insistent on making that purchase, uh, mostly, I think, to curry favor with Moscow, but also because the S-400 seems to be pretty it's effective. It's a good system. It's, it's, it's a, a great cheaper. system. It's a great system. <laughs> Derek, Let's just talk for a little system. bit about this. It is the state of the art in anti-aircraft technology. <laughs> If you have any worry that your uh, your tactical airspace might be infringed upon by an enemy air force, just get one of these babies, folks. <laughs> Use code crank. <laughs> yes, yes, that Use code crank that, that code, that code, that for twenty percent discount. That code again, baseball crank four twenty. Uh, use that code if you're getting any of those um, air defense systems. But oh, Derek, I, I did see so like. Okay, so like, is this kind of like, I mean, despite the fact that it actually, the Russian air defense systems actually work and are very good. Um, they at, work and they're cheaper. That's the other thing. They're cheaper than like the Patriot, but for it, example, it, which is what uh, the I'm sorry, but the way that it works is bad and expensive. <laughs> yeah. That's the American way of war and everyone needs to shut the fuck up. Well, yeah, two things. Like, didn't I see like, a, like the, the United States was threatening Erdogan if he goes ahead and buys these anti-aircraft uh, missile batteries from Russia that like, Oh, you, you like that? Well, guess what? We're not going to sell you any of our F thirty five jets, which That's are like you correct. know the ones that that you, that you literally can't fly if it's raining out. <laughs> and like, um, and, and as Matt said, that is the perfect example of the exact opposite of the like. We've probably spent I don't know an entire public education or healthcare system uh, on the F thirty five, which is. Probably one of the worst air fighter jets um, ever created. A one in four chance of decapitating its pilot if they try to eject. Yes, if they have one to in that's four. Correct. And that's assuming they're not passed out from from uh, oxygen deprivation <laughs> beforehand. And yes, it can't fly in the rain, and they have to repaint it after every flight. Um, but but it, yes, but, I mean, not only are we threatening not to sell them the F thirty five, but actually, the Pentagon just a couple of days ago suspended. Uh, the delivery of some material, I'm not sure exactly what parts or, uh, you know, something related to the F-35. Turkey's supposed to take its first delivery of F-35 aircraft later this year, but it now uh, looks like there may be a pretty good chance that, that the U.S. is actually going to follow through and, and block that uh, delivery. Yeah, it's like, uh, keep talking shit, buddy, or uh, keep keep it up and I'm not going to uh, sell you my uh, bed bug ridden mattress on Craigslist. <laughs> Um, but like yeah, the, this international arms sales, like despite the fact that the uh, the Russian missile systems seem to work, uh, like isn't is this this just seems all just like payola, like 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 you know with the the Saudi arms sales, like they're not really buying them to use them, they're just buying them to buy protection from America and Great Britain, right? And is it just like not a matter of they're actually the the missile systems themselves, but the fact that they're sort of you know this the is Saudis just, have taken billions of dollars out of this country and now they must bring it back <laughs> I mean yeah the 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 purchase I think of the the S400 is mostly 
to curry favor with with Russia. I mean, Erdogan really has been emphasizing his friendship with Vladimir Putin and trying to get in good with the Russians. Uh, and because the Russians don't give him any grief about things like maybe reimposing the death penalty or his authoritarianism or, you know, like killing protesters in, in Istanbul. Uh, and so it's just an easier relationship for him to maintain. And it's kind of still a – Russia's not really a great power, but they have a strong military and, and they're a good friend to have in that regard. And I think that, yeah, the, the sale and his kind of rigid insistence on going through with it despite all the grief he's gotten from not just the U.S., from the rest of NATO really, uh, is because you know he values that relationship and he wants to – to strengthen it but like it's just like the nato and like uh all of the arms manufacturers uh associated with uh their side i mean did they just want them to buy their fucking anti-aircraft missiles well the u.s wants them to buy the patriot and it's it, it's even like offered to discount the patriot system uh so that the turks could could you, buy it on a what, what the hell i mean the, the same thing, price the thing is designed to self-explode <laughs> On the ground. I mean, isn't that what you want out of an anti-aircraft? Uh, I'm just imagining, weapon? like, er- Erdogan just, like, stuck in a room with, like, a Jack Lemmon, Glengarry, Glenn Ross character. Be like, I'll tell you what, what, what do I got to do to put you in one of these Patriot <laughs> missiles? Exactly, that's Patriot, exactly. That's exactly. Let me tell you about yeah. this Patriot, folks. You really want this Patriot. Now, you can't shoot it at night uh, um, and only uh, for the first four hours of the day because then it gets a little too hot. But I'm, let me tell you, you do that in those first four hours, my God, you got a good 20% chance of hitting whatever you shoot at. <laughs> Um, so He's like you're yes, not you're not I buying mean, a missile defense system. You're buying a dream. You're, <laughs> you're buying peace they, of mind. They just like talking <laughs> to salesmen. <laughs> um, yes, I mean the answer is is part of this is that the U.S. wants Raytheon to make the sale instead of Russia's you know defense industry. Uh, there there are concerns that. Uh, if Russia sells the S-400 to Turkey, they're going to have technicians helping to install the system and train people, and they might get a gander at the wonderful F-35 and find out that it can't fly in the rain or some other secret that we would rather the Russians not know uh, and take that back to Moscow. So, I mean, there there is some kind of – uh, there are some security reasons for not wanting to let these weapon systems mix, um, but but there's a, a, a yes, there's a big chunk of this. It's just uh, why don't you buy American instead of buying Russian? Buy American, Ford, build Ford tough. Um, uh, so moving on from uh, Turkey, uh, there's another election happening. I think like what is it next week or it's very very soon in uh, Israel. Another another of our favorite uh, countries and sponsors uh, on this show. Yes, next week. It's next week. Yes, April 9th. And so, like, th- this appears that it's just like you know Netanyahu, uh, him and the Likud party have basically absorbed the insane Kahanist uh, party into their ranks to shore up their chances of winning this election. Like, is it going to be close at all, or like, w- w- what's going on there? So I haven't seen any polling on this election in a while. The last polling that I saw suggested that it could be close. Netanyahu is facing probably his biggest challenge in uh, the last – at least the last couple of elections in the form of uh, Benny Gantz, who is an ex, the ex chief of staff of the Israeli Defense Forces and has formed his own kind of – 
I mean, people call it centrist, the idea of like the center in Israeli politics is so far <laughs> to the hilarious. right that it's it's kind of ridiculous to call it that. But in that context, I guess they are centrist. Uh, he's formed his, his own party alongside uh, a businessman named Yair Lapid, who's been a sort of fixture in the Israeli center for a while now. Uh, it's called the Blue and White Party. Uh, there has been some polling that suggests uh, Gantz's party could finish – uh, slightly ahead of the Likud party in terms of the number of seats that it wins in the legislature. Uh, however, uh, that technically would give Gantz sort of the first crack at forming a coalition and, and becoming prime minister. However, uh, even in those polls, the ones that show that, that Gantz may, you know, eke out a, a slim win, uh, his mathematical path to forming a coalition, in other words, to controlling uh, a majority of seats in the legislature, is a lot harder than Netanyahu. So when it comes time to actually cobble together a bunch of parties, which always happens after an Israeli election, uh, to get the number of seats that you need to form the government, Netanyahu should have a, a, an easier path to that than than Gates. I like how they always have to do that. Oh, they got to scramble to get those necessary seats. There's like six guys in the Knesset. It's incredibly tiny. Right, it's like it's like a hundred or something. It's one hundred and twenty, one hundred and twenty. <laughs> Adorable. Uh, you know, there, I think there are more people in the New Hampshire State House than there are in the Knesset. <laughs> not, 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 that's, I'm not. I'm serious about that. They have a notoriously huge uh, state house. Uh, what I've been, I, I love the fact that there's a very good chance that Yahoo's going to get in there, even though he has a credible opponent, and he is on the verge of getting indicted. They said they were going to indict him. Uh, yes, he's on the verge. They d- decided to wait until after the election to indict him, not that there's a fix there or anything. Yes, I mean, they decided they didn't want to interfere with the election, and so they've interfered with the election by not indicting him, yeah. what exa- even though yeah, that, the evidence yeah, is there to that's, indict him. That's the work of Attorney General James Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> what, what exactly is a Netanyahu, uh, like these charges that he's faced with here? Is this just like standard uh, political corruption or what? Yeah, I mean, there's some kind of, uh, you know, accepting gifts from rich people that he probably shouldn't have accepted. Uh, there's at least one charge that's related to, uh, like, he, he approached a media company and said, you know, in exchange, you know, if you give me good coverage, favorable coverage, uh, I'll be nice to you in a regulatory sense. Uh, so, you know, he's doing a little, little horse trading in that regard. I mean, it's, it's kind of standard corruption stuff, but, but the evidence, if it's enough to indict, I mean, you know, the, the tradition, Historically in Israeli politics has been, uh, if you get indicted for something like this, you resign and Netanyahu's not going to do that. Hell no. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's, uh, where, where things stand, I guess. He won't be in trouble until he's accused of, uh, molesting children in the basement of a falafel store. <laughs> But, like, you know, Likud and Netanyahu have been, like, the, the dominant political force in Israeli politics for a long time now. And, you know, su- su- such that, like, when when times are good, they can coast along on this idea that, like, actually, like, Israel is a multi-ethnic democracy. And we have, you know, uh, Arabs who are in the Knesset or whatever. But as soon as they under any amount of pressure... They go straight to like the insane, you know, nationalist fascist parties. And then again, and then passing that law recently that like explicitly makes it clear that, you know, Israel for the Jews only. 
Yes, I mean they they passed the the you know this new national uh, law that makes it clear that if you're not Jewish, uh, you can still be a citizen, but you're not really a first class citizen. You're kind of in a, a lower level uh, of citizenship. Um, yes, I mean Netanyahu's pattern has been anytime he's challenged internationally for uh, Israel's treatment of the Palestinians, uh, he comes back with "We're the only democracy in the region." And Arab Israelis are treated; they're full citizens. They can do whatever they want. But as soon as it comes time for an election, he starts, you know, giving speeches and cutting ads like the Arabs are voting. Can you believe this? You have to do something about this. To get his base, his you know insanely right wing base, uh, out to to support him, and then I mean, this is how he whips up support. The guys who really go buck wild are his junior partners in the coalition, the Jewish Home Party, <laughs> whose ads are even more insane than Netanyahu's Likud ones. They've got two that are genuinely jaw dropping. One of them is with Aliyat Shalad or whatever the hell. The, oh God, that's right. The dime, about the that, dime, yeah. who's the justice minister, <laughs> yes. uh, where it's a fake perfume ad, like a Calvin Klein ad, where the perfume is called fascism, <laughs> and the punchline is at the end. She says, "Smells like democracy to me." <laughs> and then the other one that just came out today, and that honestly. That's- Jaw dropping. This we'll, one is insane. We'll buckle in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. We'll know. Yeah, I know, yeah, I know what you're I don't talking know if about. You, heard of, you probably heard of this, uh, Derek. I, I haven't seen okay. it. Okay. No. So is, this yeah. one is with the head. The head of the the home party is Naftali Bennett, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and he right. did one where he is he picks up a dove and he, a literal dove in his hand, and he scolds it for thinking that peace is good, and how you know you're an idiot for being for trying to get peace. And he's sh- she shot it in the exact square where Rabin was assassinated. Holy crap. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. yeah, no, yeah. I, I saw that this morning. Like, he's standing, like, like X marks the spot. Yeah. He's like, like, it would be like, you know, if you did, like, a commercial outside the book depository yeah. or whatever. Oh just being like, God. yeah. I mean... I mean, they're like, and he's just, like, like, no, he's like, seriously, like, not even like yeah, winking, just no. saying, like, yeah, like we murked his ass yeah. and we were right to do it. Yeah, talk shit, get hit. Yeah, Jesus, that's that's wild. it's mass off time, baby. You know, I I was reading a, a, a some horrible op ed in, in the forward this week from like you know uh, an Israeli citizen who's like you know like a you know I you know I'm a typical Israeli liberal and like the the whole op ed was agonizing over like I just don't know who I'm going to vote for in this election. It's the age old question to Netanyahu or not to Netanyahu, and you know essentially the point they were making as an Israeli liberal. Is that like, you know, our elections are different because like all of the, the issues that other people like, you know, American elections are fought over are settled here. Like abortion's legal. It's not going anywhere. We have a, a national health care system. Everything's great and good. The only issue that anyone ever votes on is just security. Who's going to keep us safe? And Netanyahu has is, in, you know, in, in her mind, has done the best job. You know, he like in her words, fewer Jews have died under his rule than, you know, at any other point. So like. She's like, you know, I might be tempted to vote blue and white, but then like, you know, what are they, you know, what are they going to do in terms of security? Like as if like that party, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're going to immediately recognize Palestine and like open up the (laughs) Gaza Strip or something. Yeah. There's, there's almost no daylight between Netanyahu and Gantz on uh, the Palestinian issue. I mean, like what are they? Netanyahu has, has argued that Gantz is like some kind of 
peacenik who's going to you know open up Israel to the Arabs or whatever. But uh, it, you know, on, on its face, that's a ridiculous argument given Gantz's background as the uh, the ex chief of staff of the IDF. He's and he's been really, he's been uh, running with ads bragging about what a great job he did uh, op- uh, organizing and directing Cast Gaza, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's like, do you remember Cast Lead? I kicked the shit out of him. Right. Um, and like you know, and also, I mean, we we should not let this go uh, talking about the Israeli election without mentioning that, like, you know, over the last even days or weeks, I mean, they have been fucking going hog wild on the border uh, with Gaza. They've been they've killed with sniper rifles. Probably I don't know fifty or sixty people over the last couple weeks. Um, I mean, there there have been exchanges of fire. The there were a couple of rockets that were fired out of Gaza that didn't, as usual. Uh, well, there was one that that hit a house, kind of uh, outside of Tel Aviv, and and injured some people. And then, of course, they respond with massive airstrikes against everything in the the Gaza Strip. Uh, um, the, the things are actually have been quiet the last few days. There's been some talk that uh, Israel and Hamas may even be circling some kind of a, a, a ceasefire deal, like a real ceasefire deal. Egypt has been trying to broker something like that for a, for a while now. Um, you know, so uh, you kind of have to wait and see. Hamas has been talking pretty openly about this, that they're close to cutting a deal. The Israelis uh, don't want to say anything. Netanyahu especially doesn't want to say anything right now while the election is uh, looming. So uh, there may be some some news from there uh, soon it it, it kind of depends on whether things remain relatively calm or they they you know get back to rockets and and airstrikes again and we should definitely point out that in the run up to here that the Trump administration has certainly showed their preference by giving Netanyahu the gift of recognizing Israeli control of the Golan Heights oh yeah correct yes little uh, little uh, quid pro quo there for all the help uh, Netanyahu gave in 2016 could, I mean, for those of you who aren't aware, could you, Derek, could you give a little background on the Golan Heights? I mean, this was territory that's like disputed between Israel and Syria that Israel like basically took over during which war? Uh, the the Six Day War in 1967, the same war where Israel took over Gaza and uh, the West Bank and East Jerusalem. It's sort of the other occupied territory that nobody really talks about anymore. Like what um, what what is in the Golan Heights? Like what's what what is there? I mean, there's mostly kind of little farming communities and and houses. There are there are some Israeli settlements that they've built uh, in the the decades since 1967. Um, mostly, the Golan's value is uh, strategic. Uh, the Syrian military, because the Golan sits kind of on a uh, uh, it's it's the, the heights. Golan Heights, so it's, it's in the heights. Right, it sits above kind of a lot of Israeli territory down uh, below it. Uh, the Syrian military used the Golan to as a as a staging area for its artillery and you know rockets uh, that they fired into Israel periodically, often after the Israelis did would do something to antagonize, like they'd uh, you know do something to kind of uh, mess around in the Golan, and then Syria would respond. And Israel would say, oh, God, we're under attack. You know, this can't 
stand. And so they seized it uh, in 1967, and they've been holding it, uh, basically insisting that they can't give it back because Syria is a hostile government, and they'll, uh, you know, put artillery back on the heights and start shelling Israeli towns and cities again. Um, in the last, especially in the last, uh, you know, seven or eight years, obviously because of the Syrian civil war, there's been very little talk about. Uh, Israel giving the Golan back. Even before that, there really wasn't because a lot of people in the international community bought into this idea that for defensive reasons, Israel couldn't give it back. Uh, but especially in the past few years, there's been no talk about this. Um, so there was no kind of impetus from the international community or anything for Israel to give up the Golan. There was nothing kind of looming in that regard. This was really just uh, an election present from from Trump to his pal Netanyahu. But I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, you know, in the post-World War II international order, acquisition of territory through military conquest is a big no-no, right? Uh, yes, it's it's forbidden. It's like the one thing... Uh, if if international law since World War II means anything, it means you can't conquer territory by force anymore. And, and uh, now the the Israelis say, uh, and Netanyahu has tried to fashion this like exception to international law uh, that because he claims Israel took the Golan in a defensive war or in a defensive military action uh, that it's legitimate. But the the problems with that are first of all. Uh, it's it's debatable. It's very debatable whether the the six day war was a defensive war. Uh, the Israelis claim that it was a preemptive war uh, and that they were about to be attacked by Egypt and Syria and and Jordan. Uh, but in point of fact, Israel fired the first shots of that war. I mean, if 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 there was an aggressor in the most immediate sense, it was Israel. And the second problem is there is no exception to international law for a defensive war, right? Like you can't you you just can't take terror by conquest period that's that's the standard well here's some here's some more good news uh coming from uh israel and palestine uh the elusive peace deal peace in the middle east it could happen reporting today in the uh daily beast uh betsy woodruff and uh Oswin, uh have said that our old friend ellen dershowitz is on the case now uh, writing here, Alan Dershowitz, the celebrity lawyer famous for in the Trump era for criticizing the president's legal antagonists on Fox News, has consulted with senior White House officials on efforts to negotiate a peace deal between the Israelis and Palestinians. I've consulted with them about it, Dershowitz told the Daily Beast on Tuesday. He said he had discussed the issue with Jared Kushner, Special Envoy Jason Greenblatt, Ambassador David Friedman, and President Trump himself. So... J the Jared squad is adding another member. And if you've got the Dersh on the case, you know, that that's a deal. That's a he, deal right he there. Got, he, got Netanyahu, he got Netanyahu and Abbas to sit, uh, sit down and hash it all out over a nice big cheese pizza. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my, my original reaction to this, I was like, oh, they're sending Dershowitz to Israel. Would, it, would Netanyahu kill his wife or something? <laughs> And uh, here, here he says right here in the daily, uh, he says, uh, I've this is Dershowitz speaking of the Golan Heights. He said, I compared the Golan Heights to a captured battleship. He said, you don't give back a battleship you've captured in a defensive war. <laughs> so, you know, you don't you don't change horses in midstream. You don't give back battleships in defensive wars. Yes, definitely. Like. 18th century maritime law should be the standard that we use here as opposed to international law since World War II. It's, it's, it just makes sense. 
But yeah, no, we're, we are sending our best over there. Jared Kushner and Alan Dershowitz. Jesus, that's that's a grim, grim concept. I mean, Kushner's peace plan, which he says he's going to unveil after the election, uh, the Palestinian Authority has already said it's dead on arrival. Uh, and they've done – the administration has done so many things to just kind of deliberately antagonize the Palestinians, believing, I think, that if you just – bash these people down enough, they'll accept whatever slop you offer them. Uh, and so, you know, we've had the the recognition of Jerusalem and the, the embassy move. You've got uh, the Golan now, which doesn't really affect the Palestinians, but is still part and parcel of the sort of uh, Israel gets whatever it wants uh, idea. Uh, you know, they've cut aid to the UN Relief Works Agency, which handles Palestinian refugee issues, basically trying to eliminate that agency and just define Palestinian refugees out of existence, um, you know, and and I think much like the the strategy that they've used with a, a number of other kind of uh, sort of opponents of the United States around the world, I think they're going to find that uh, you can't like the beatings will continue until morale improves. It's not really a standard for international negotiations. It doesn't get people inclined to talk to you and, and uh, really listen to what you're trying to say. So we won't get to see the Kushner plan until after the, the Israeli elections. But when we do get to see it, I'm willing to bet a huge feature of it. will getting both sides, both Abbas and Netanyahu to agree to uh, buy six, six, six park Avenue. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's going to be, you know, on the table somewhere. Yeah, if if we can get them together on one shitty building that's been <laughs> losing money ever since you bought it, you know that that's the first step. When, imagine if you know, like, and then like, what if they have to live and work together yeah. in six 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 Park they, Avenue? They, they have to fix the toilets together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Interview doormen <laughs> and um, yeah, and then lose money, and then just continually <laughs> just continue lose to hemorrhage money, money on their uh, idiotic real estate speculation. <laughs> That's that's truly an odd couple for the 21st century. That would be a, a good sitcom, I think. Moving on uh, from Israel, to, here's another uh, another global hotspot. How about uh, Venezuela? Venezuela continues to uh, you know vex uh, U.S. policymakers. Like, but Derek, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna just state this, and you can tell me if I'm wrong or not. Like, this is just my impression of what's going on in Venezuela right now, or at least from the American you know blob perspective. I think it's actually kind of heartening to see just how badly this coup attempt has turned out so far, because, I mean, it has not been impressive. If if you were hoping for regime change, if you were hoping to get Maduro out of there uh, quick, it has not gone the way. I mean, like just the idea that, uh, you know, Guaido or whatever just came to America and then like Marco Rubio and Mike Pence were like, great, yeah. We got it. All those generals, they support you. And then, like, just nothing happens. Like, you know, you can't be feeling too great about that if you want to see Maduro out of there. It's like the Bay of Pigs if everyone involved had a massive head injury. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's certainly a far cry from the case that uh the bush administration made for intervening in iraq this was the plan here seems to have been to have guaido just kind of announce which he did in january okay i'm the president now 
and and the whole Venezuelan political system would just kind of fall in line. Like the military would turn on Maduro. Uh, everybody would just say, oh, "Okay, you're the president now. Here we go." And yeah, none of that has happened. And and he doesn't. He clearly doesn't have any idea what to do at this point. And neither, it seems, does the Trump administration. Like the the expectation was uh, that this would happen very quickly, and nothing changed. Uh, and now they're just kind of. Uh, you know, white knuckling it and, and trying to figure out uh, another way forward. Basically. Well, I think, I think the, the way forward pretty clearly from now is that they are going, I mean, all the people who, of course, are, you know, in this country were so, you know, terrified and concerned for all the, you know, horrible misery and deprivation caused by, you know, a basically collapsed economy in Venezuela. Well, now their strategy is going to be make everything even more desperate and miserable, miserable there through, you know, increasing sanctions and, and you know, the blackouts and things like that. I mean, it's very clear that what they're going to do now is basically just squeeze and starve the country until they hope the military defects. Um, yes. I mean, they've already done it. They, they cut uh, Venezuela's oil exports. They cut off Venezuela's oil exports. That's, that's it. I mean, that was like the n- nuclear option short of actually, I guess, nuking Venezuela. Um, I mean, the I, they big... don't, they're probably thinking about that too. I mean, I <laughs> after they got owned so badly, because the, the root of the whole fuck up is that Guaido overpromised his ability to peel off members of the military, uh, and they ended up getting like fifty guys or something. Uh, and then the U.S. was like, "Oh shit!" They had no plan B because they never had any plan to actually military inter- militarily intervene first. They didn't have anything set up with any of the their allies like Brazil or Colombia to actually do the dirty work. So when they couldn't get, basically they wanted to foment, a, if not a coup, a civil war using military defectors, and they just never got it. And yeah, now their only thing they can do is just make things worse and worse for people in Venezuela and then say, oh my God, look what Maduro's do, er, doing. Classic American style, stop hitting yourself uh, foreign policy. And uh, Derek, I got here, uh, there's an article in the, the Washington Post that ran this week that I think basically sums up the kind of blob thinking on this. comes courtesy of Jackson Deal. There's a name I haven't heard in a while. Oh, him him yeah. and Fred Hyatt are really like the Beavis and Butthead of like dipshit <laughs> neoconservative American policy as far as newspapers go. But blob uh, takes. Yeah, the, the headline here is Trump's intervention in Venezuela has stalled because Caracas knows he's bluffing. And uh, he writes here... Um, To date, however, the campaign has had virtually no effect on its intended target. There have been no significant defections of Venezuelan generals and no sign of any move against Maduro, who has remained entrenched in the presidential palace, even as opposition demonstrations have sputtered. The drive to replace Maduro with National Assembly leader Juan, uh, how do you pronounce his name again? Guaido. Juan Guaido, which has been the Trump administration's most robust foreign policy initiative after the attempt to disarm North Korea has stalled. The problem here is not the Russians and their mostly four show intervention. More important is the corruption of senior military leaders and the malign influence of the thousands of Cuban advisors embedded in the chain of command. That that's that that line there made me raise my eyebrow. I hadn't heard of these these Cuban advisors, but they seem to have found the culprit here. And it's the Cuban advisors still bedeviling, uh, you know, the world's most powerful country. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 quite a quite an argument, I guess. I mean, Cuba uh is sort of 
when it comes to Latin America, there's sort of the catch-all evildoer. Like if there's a, a a regime in Latin America that we don't like, it's because Cuba is involved. Uh, Bolsonaro, Jair Bolsonaro, when he you know uh, came into office in Brazil, kicked the Cuban doctors out, basically immiserating his own people, just to kind of demonstrate that he's you know uh, he's on the right side of history or that he's you know opposed to Cuba. Uh, and yeah. Yeah, that's that's a bit of a stretch, it seems to me. I think what they were hoping for was uh, not so much the generals. I mean, Maduro has done a pretty good job of kind of buying the generals' allegiance. Um, he's you know spent into Venezuela's gold reserves, and he's used oil revenue, and he's kind of made it worth the the generals' while to to stick with him. I think the hope was probably that you'd get a lot of like colonels and majors and captains. As you go down the the chain of command, you get closer to people who are um, not as insulated from the hardships that that Venezuelan people are are facing uh, as the generals probably are. And so the hope was maybe that you get a bunch of those guys to turn on Maduro. Maybe their loyalty to Maduro wouldn't be as strong. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's been a total bust. And, and there clearly was no thought given to the idea that, you know, what are we going to do if this doesn't work? Like if we have our guy go out there and announce that he's the president now and nobody – everybody kind of shrugs their shoulders and uh, says, no, not really. We're, we're not going to pay attention to you. Uh, like what do we do then? There, there doesn't seem to have been any thought given to that. Instead, I mean, they have to just go out there and say, well, for the 60th year in a row, we got owned by Cuba. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tiny, <laughs> poor island with a fraction of a fraction of our GDP but and, like, mil- and, for- and foreign policy apparatus owned us again. I mean, <laughs> uh, like, but, but, I mean, aside from like uh, the the, the top tier generals who you know, assuming that you know he's paid them off or you know that it's worth it in their bank account not to defect or whatever. I mean, you know, wouldn't wouldn't he not like necessarily have to like. They, oh, Maduro is a great leader or assume that like all of Venezuela's uh, miseration is due entirely to the United States. But like, what do you think accounts for the, you know, ongoing pretty staunch uh, loyalty of, you know, uh, the, the Venezuelan military? Um, I mean, I it, it's an interesting question. I, I, I mean, I, I guess um, the argument, I mean, you know, a lot of these guys may be loyal to their own generals and and their generals are loyal to Maduro and it just kind of flows you know upward like that um i mean i think the more the united states uh demands that maduro go the more likely it is that soldiers in the Venezuelan military are going to say, uh, you know, screw you guys. We don't, we're not interested in what the United States wants. We're not here to do America's bidding. Like, and, and the more closely Guaido is identified as being kind of the Trump administration's man in Caracas, uh, the less credibility he has to talk to these people and, uh, you know, try to, uh, turn them to his side. It's the same problem you see, uh, in other places. I mean, you see it in Iran. There's the this sort of question about uh, how much should the United States openly be calling for regime change and how much does that discredit the internal opposition to the, you know, to the Iranian government? Uh, and 
you know, it ha- it's in other places as well. But I think that's that that uh, dynamic is is playing out to some degree in Venezuela. It, 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 like the more the United States kind of openly pushes for these things, the more resistance there is uh, to to going along with it. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure conditions in Venezuela for the average Venezuelan probably pretty much sucks right about now. Um, but like in your mind, is there any productive role for America or the international community in quotes to play here in terms of uh, aid or, you know, uh, medicine, food, things like that. I mean, it's always complicated when the United States is involved in, in things like this because, you know, it, it's there's a carrot and a stick always here. And, I you know, the delivery, you know, the actual delivery of the aid is also um, sort of questionable. But like, you know, is there any I guess what I'm saying is like, is there any like productive role for America or any other country to like in terms of just alleviating the suffering? Lift the fucking sanctions. How about um, that? Yeah, you could lift the sanctions. That would help uh, in in a more immediate sense. Uh, I think the best thing the United States could do would be to shut up. I mean, the the part of the problem here uh, in terms of alleviating kind of the, the immediate suffering of the Venezuelan people, uh, you could do that with humanitarian aid. But the, the, the whole concept of humanitarian aid in Venezuela has become so politicized now, uh, mostly because the United States and Guaido have politicized it. I mean, Guaido did that, that stunt in February where he was like, I'm going to bring aid into the country and that's going to prove that I'm the legitimate president of Venezuela. And it, it went completely bust. And of course it did. I mean, Maduro wouldn't let it in. And why would he? I mean, when it's presented as a direct challenge to his, uh, authority and his legitimacy, why would he have let that and especially when the one the guy from America overseeing it was Elliot Abrams, a guy who we know for a fact in the 1980s used humanitarian fucking shipments to Nicaragua to smuggle guns to the fucking right. country. Well, yeah, that, guns, yeah, that, yes. yeah, exactly. That's what I mean by like, uh, you know, the United States getting involved in aid is a little complicated because it'd be really interesting because to they're see, accepting aid from you know, not America. Yeah, exactly. Of course. But you know, right. I, I mean, even even a lot of international NGOs didn't want any part of that. Uh, humanitarian aid stunt. I keep calling it a stunt. It was. Uh, because it was so politicized. So I, I and it think wasn't the best thing... It wasn't sorry, fire to, to their own fucking yeah, yeah. trucks. No, no, Matt, you were just, I was just about to ask. It Wasn't there like an, an actual like false flag where like they were like, oh, the Maduro, they, they threw a Molotov cocktail and they're blowing up the aid. Yeah. But it was just like... The, a video showed it was clearly the, their own supporters who yeah. knew who set fire to this yes. own, their own. And convoy. then the New York Times retracted right. that like a week after spending the time saying that Maduro's uh, our military set fire to the trucks. Just right. astounding. And after, by the way, Marco Rubio said oh, the Venezuelan military has just attacked a truck in Colombia. The United States stands ready to aid the Colombians in defending their border. Like this is, you know, this was like the the, Don- uh, Gulf of the start of yeah. the war, basically. Yeah. yeah. Now they tried to make a Dolph- Gulf of Tonkin uh, moment there and just but their keystone oaf, so it didn't work. Uh, but no, I think if you're if you're dealing with somebody in your face yelling about, oh, my God, what we need to do something, you know, with that American concept that it's everything's our responsibility. And if they're suffering, we must alleviate it. Of course, that doesn't refer to a place like Yemen or anything else, but it certainly refers mean, means Venezuela. And you're talking to like Beatrice Domingola or whatever the fuck, like that lady from The New York Times. Joanna House dad is literally an IMF <laughs> vampire who helped destroy the goddamn economy with fucking structural adjustment and austerity in the 90s, which gave fucking... Uh, uh, Chavez the road to being the president because they annihilated the goddamn country uh, because there's this insane fucking revisionism now where Venezuela was like fucking 
a swinging 60s Acapulco or something until the moment Chavez took power when, in fact, structural adjustment had, uh, like, taken the country apart. And this guy helped fucking direct it, and now his UCB improv fail daughter is doing videos about how it's not a good look to oppose regime change. <laughs> Tell these fucking people... We have a responsibility to stop strangling the goddamn country and lift the fucking sanction. Uh, Derek, did you watch that video? Uh, I, I, I've watched. Uh, I watched a part of it. I couldn't. I had to tap out. I mean, it's it's, it's fucking unbearable. It was cringeworthy. I mean, like, I mean even if I agreed yeah. with it, which I didn't. Like, it's just cr- it was a cringeworthy video. Uh, it was that on its presentation. It was that awful, like you know, sort of shareable video style yeah. where everything is like everything is a cut and an edit and this like quirky tone and yeah, the, the UCB train comic where she literally says, you know, not a good look, and then she goes on to say. Sometimes hands off means blood on your hands. And I'm like, excuse me, like uh, there's blood on my fucking hands because I don't want America to get involved in Venezuela in any way. What what does that mean? Like, what? How about the IMF and World Bank? Well, where are are their fucking hands in all this? Yeah. And, 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 And in the video, she does say she's like, you know, America's history of intervention in in Latin America should give us pause <laughs> and then just skirts over the fact that the guy literally in charge of America's policy towards Venezuela right now is the guy who should give us pause. <laughs> <laughs> what are, well, like, it gave her pause, but they cut that and then they moved on to the look, rest what are of the a video. few what are a few helicopter flights between friends? What, but the thing is, is that Felix spoke this woman into fucking being because it was like a week ago we were talking to, I think, Alex about how like everyone in the boomer generation is just mask off fascist. Like we're talking like Neftali Bennett just saying, yeah, we killed Rabin and we'll kill anybody who tries to get in our way. Uh, and but how their kids are going to use that millennial passive aggression and it's going to be intersectional fascism. And then a week later, this lady is on the Internet going, ooh, uh, anti-interventionism. Ooh, uh, this ain't it, Chief. <laughs> and I, of course, don't mean that in a way to impugn our, our Native American uh, uh, fellow citizens. She also said in that video that uh, she's like, you know, I'm not. I'm not a Republican. Now, I am not a pro-Trump military hawk. For reference, my spirit animal is Ruth Bader Ginsburg in workout clothes. Like, I'm not a hawk. In fact, Ruth Bader Ginsburg in workout clothes is, oh, my, yeah, spi- spirit is my spirit animal. animal. And I just gotta say, I hope she gets canceled for using the phrase spirit animal. Yeah, exactly. That's appropriation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Baroness Hausman. Uh, no, th- that, w- that was, that was atrocious. That was a shitty job in the prayers fucking streets. You know, it's it's really funny because like uh, you know, Virgil is usually the one who is most reticent to talk about foreign policy at all. But you know, he he got everyone super pissed off at him today because he just basically said, if Maduro was like the tyrannical dictator that uh, he's supposed to be, why is the main opposition leader allowed to leave the country? Literally drum up support for like a CIA-backed military coup against him, and then allowed to return to the country unharmed. Like if he was if he was like actually as evil and i'm not even saying like maduro is a great guy or his leadership of venezuela has been you know flawless or anything but i mean a it's like not really my business but b like if he is the world's greatest evil at the moment like would this guido guy be like be able to move freely around venezuela and travel out of the country 
Um, I mean, it is an interesting, <laughs> interesting feature of the uh, Maduro totalitarian regime that they haven't put Guaido in prison. Um, well, they just they just ruled that he can't run for re-election, or they just like. Well, they stripped him of his immunity from prosecution, so he could be tried at this point for leaving the country. There was a ban on his travel while he was doing his CIA world tour, uh, and you know he could be now prosecuted for that. He could be investigated for uh, declaring himself president, which, you know, in in, uh, many contexts is probably, you know, could be considered a crime. Uh, um, And so they may go in that direction now. I mean, I think uh, Maduro has made the calculation that uh, throwing Guaido in jail would make him a martyr. It would it would invite more trouble uh, than it would alleviate uh, uh, from the rest of the world. And and so I'll- I think he's decided uh, not to do that. But I mean, obviously, we'll we'll have to wait and see. What and also, now. he probably has calculated that this goofball is not a real threat to him. Well, right. He, I mean, that's he got, part of it. Yeah. He was going to lead an exodus of troops to like you know do a fucking uh, to to do like a training. Uh, beachhead in Colombia, and then like reinvade the country, and it was like fifty dudes who are now stuck in Colombia, and they can't get any housing or food, and they're like, "What the fuck? <laughs> I backed the wrong horse." Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's all kind of a, a combination of like Guaido hasn't shown himself to be very good at this, and on top of that, you know, I'm likely to just invite more grief for myself if I if I try to lock him up. He got you know? too horny for bras. I have to say though that. <laughs> Like uh, these people who say a lot and uh, like the Democrats, especially who say Maduro is a dictator. uh, These are people who want Donald Trump to be thrown in prison for colluding with Russia before an election. What the fuck is literally going to the CIA and saying, please overthrow my government? I mean, that seems like way worse. (laughs) That's collusion. That's real collusion. (laughs) That's actual collusion. As opposed um, to my half-wit son tries to sell a fucking sinking gambling barge (laughs) that's in Lake Baikal to some fucking (laughs) Russian mob guys in exchange for a giant sack of, like, fentanyl and and, uh, limited edition Beanie Babies. But um, what do we actually know about... I mean, I'm I'm, I'm asking... I'm I'm curious. Like, what, what... what do we know of uh, Guaido himself and his, the party that he's a member of? Like, where where do they fall in terms of, like, politically, in terms of Venezuela or a kind of international... Like, how would you describe their politics? Uh, I mean, what I know of them, they're internationally speaking on the left. They're, his party is a, a member of the Socialist International. <laughs> um, but like Israel, but sort of in the opposite direction, there's – you have to take it in context. I mean, Venezuelan uh, politics are very – like, they're very, very much – further to the left. The center is much further to the left than I think uh, you'd find in the United States, for example. Uh, So to say that he's kind of internationally on the left uh, in the context of Venezuela doesn't mean that much. Um, He seems to be um, for Venezuelan politics more on the right. And I think the fact that he's made himself the front man for basically a right wing coup effort uh, suggests something about you know what he's comfortable with in terms of politics but beyond that I, I don't really know I mean I'm not I'm not uh, in, terribly familiar with uh, with his politics all right well how about to um to close things out let's go to another another country that's that's it's gone it's gone mad isn't it and I'm talking about our friends across the pond Great Britain it's all balmy isn't it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Great Britain, uh, which continues to be, I don't know. It's a shambles, mate. It's It's a fucking omni shambles. Just, I don't know, maybe probably the most embarrassing democracy in the world right now. Uh, they've got us beat. Amazingly. They figured out yeah, a way to beat so. us, which is amazing. Uh, uh, Theresa May, just another resounding defeat in Parliament. This fucking Brexit yes. thing is just continues to be it's, astoundingly funny. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you live in the UK, but I mean... Sorry, mate. Uh, it's it's hilarious. I can't wait to go there because we're going on a UK tour uh, in June and just own everyone there the entire time. Uh, <laughs> it's you know nobody knows what the fuck doing to do. my flawless accent or, 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 or want. I will get glassed. But I, I just got to read though uh, the, the real the real soothsayer. I mean, Derek, you you are aspiring to be like this guy, the true king of the flat globe. I'm talking about Thomas Friedman. I can't grow a mustache like his. I, I, I've tried, but it just I can't make it happen. And he had he turned out an opinion piece in the, for the Times today that is vintage, vintage Friedman. And I got to share it with you guys. Uh, the headline is um, the, the title is the United Kingdom has gone mad. The problem with holding out for a perfect Brexit cl- plan is that you can't fix stupid. And he, <laughs> OK, well, he would know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's lit. That, what is that? Is that one of the fucking like blue collar comedy kings uh, punchline? That yeah, like I, I, Bill Engvall or some <laughs> shit. Yeah. Hey, I, Theresa May, here's your sign. So he goes. Um, just skipping ahead, just a little bit. He goes. Uh, seriously, if you can't take a joke, you shouldn't have come to London right now because there is political farce everywhere. In truth, though, it's not very funny. It's actually tragic. <laughs> What we're seeing is a country that's determined to commit economic suicide, but can't even agree on how to kill itself. It's an epic failure of political leadership. I say, bring back the monarchy. Where have you gone, Queen Elizabeth II? A nation turns its lonely eyes to you. Activate, <laughs> Activate the, queen! the queen! Activate the bloody queen! <laughs> the bloody queen! <laughs> So Thomas Friedman hit her fucking moldering corpse with a goddamn car battery so that she can be awake for five minutes to fire everyone and declare martial law. Stab that adrenaline needle into yeah. her heart. Get her up. Get the queen. Get the on. queen yeah. up, mate. Tom, Tom Friedman has already gone full monarchist, but yeah. he goes here. Um, Put her in her mech suit. You know she has one. He goes here. Seriously, the United Kingdom, the world's fifth largest economy, a country whose elites created modern parliamentary democracy, modern banking and finance, the industrial revolution and the whole concept of globalization. Oh, wait, they're responsible for all of those horrible things. Wow. They really are. a bunch. Get rid of this shithole country. Fucking just controlled demolition of the entire (laughs) island. This is the United Kingdom, the world's fifth largest economy that brought us such things as those dark satanic mills. Jimmy Savile. (laughs) imperialism <laughs> the opium wars and you know and, and another of and many genocide, other unspeakables uh, both yeah. kinds <laughs> yeah. both yeah, kinds when, of indian genocide oh, con- con- concentration camps yeah. they invented those as yes well. they did but well, take a bow <laughs> bring back that, the- that queen elizabeth line the only thing i could think of was uh when mr burns says to smithers very well begin the thawing of jim <laughs> 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 because you're um yeah, the the country that brought us, you know, um, uh, ritual pederasty um, yeah, um, seems dead set on quitting the European Union, the world's largest market for the free movement of goods, capital, services, and labor without a well-conceived plan or maybe without any plan at all. 
both conservative and labor members of parliament keep voting down one plan after another, looking for the perfect fix, the pain-free exit from the EU. But there is none because you can't fix stupid. Nope. Or because, you know, we've been we, these countries have all been enmeshed in these uh, transnational institutions that have totally abolished national sovereignty in many ways and made it impossible for you to function in a global economy without being part of their network. And they will punish you and make it impossible for you to fucking, uh, you know, dictate your own goddamn uh, uh, destiny economically uh, because of the interdependence and, and, the, and the trade network. Like, I think it has more to do with it than a fucking uh, Larry the Cable Guy line from 2004. You fucking mustachioed dipshit. He goes, the, the entire Brexit choice was presented to the public in 2016 with utterly misleading simplicity. I mean, that's hilarious coming from Thomas Friedman. <laughs> if you remember some of his hilarious yeah, columns about the yeah. pitching the Iraq war. Yeah. He was just like, yeah. You, gotta take, you just got to say, suck on this. Suck on this. Suck on this. That's pretty simplistic <laughs> there, Thomas. Yeah. No, he said American troops need to go door to door and tell Iraqis, you don't like of living in a the world we've always dreamed of well <laughs> suck on this yeah. uh and he and he goes here um uh it was uh, uh it was sold with a pack of lies about both the size of the benefits and the ease of implementation and it continues to be pushed by conservative hardliners who used to care about business but are now obsessed with restoring britain's sovereignty over any economic considerations yeah, it's funny. It's funny how conservatives have uh, given up the ghost on you know globalization and free market if they can just double down on sovereignty. Yeah. Well, that's because the whole thing's falling apart. It's not working for people anymore, and they need to find uh, the scapegoats. And even if you know, in the broad sense, all of these things have been good for the ruling class, they are undermining their credibility in you know the, the putative democracies, and they have to find uh, some reason. But the thing is, is that. Like, there's a strong left case to get out of the EU for the abolition of the fucking EU uh, altogether. Uh, but the problem, I mean, he has a, a bit of a correct thing in there in that the Brexit vote was absurd because regardless of how you thought Brexit should be handled, what, what do you think to do with the EU? As, like, leave or not, that was an absurd question because it didn't tell you what the terms were going to be. And that's why it's been this two-year clusterfuck because no one... No, there's nobody has any idea of like what the mandate is because there's one there's there's there has to be an agreement of some kind and no one has there's been no ability to create a consensus across parties or even with the general public on what that alternative is and so it's just been finding out that every single one is unpopular <laughs> and it can't pass every single alternative they they had like a vote where they did like they let them all pick like they had eight options and they voted yes or no on all of them and every single one failed by different margins but every single one failed astounding so uh it, it's, it's it wouldn't be a thomas friedman column unless he didn't include uh even better than uh the you know apocryphal cab driver he uh does love speaking to the real heroes here who are uh corporate ceos in this case <laughs> The, the CEO of Airbus, and I'm going to skip these paragraphs, but basically he just uses this guy. He basically publishes the Airbus CEO's threat to the British people that, you know, they, we can always build our planes elsewhere. And, you know, Brexit is making us more likely to do that. So, you know, he's like, if you like Brexit, you know, uh, I hope you don't like jobs. So the CEO of Airbus, he's sort of laundering that point of view in the column. But he goes, he goes on, he says, I understand the grievances of many of those who voted to leave the EU. For starters, they felt swamped by EU immigrants. 
There are reportedly some 300,000 French citizens living in London, which would make it the biggest, one of the biggest French cities in the world. I had a drink with a member of parliament in the bar in the House of Commons on Tuesday, and as we sat down, he whispered to me that, quote, not a single person working in this whole building is British, which is like, first of all, I'd like to know the name of that guy. That sounds insane and paranoid, and uh, it sounds like the ravings of a madman. And also, like he says, that um, I understand the grievances. What, the, what there's 300,000 French people living in England? Uh, what is I this can, like? I can understand that. Yeah, well. The French? Ooh. Yeah, but I, I don't. The, the complaint isn't with the French people who moved to Britain. It's with the Poles and the Czechs and the the other Eastern European, uh, Central and Eastern European migrants that have come to to Britain. That's those are the ones who were demonized by the uh, the the pro Brexit side, kind of on the right uh, during the the referendum campaign. And he goes. I also get the resentment of Brits at having regulations set by faceless EU bureaucrats in Brussels. And I get their resentment at the globalized urban elites who those in the rural areas here believed looked down at them. And I get the squeeze on middle class wages here that gets blamed unfairly on the EU and immigrants the way that President Trump blames Mexicans. I get all of that. But I, but I also get what it means to be a leader in the 21st century. I, lo- I, I love that. Like He spends those two paragraphs just being like, yeah, all of you, uh, all of you fucking uh, hicks and uh, lunatics, angry about uh, Polish plumbers uh, taking your uh, jobs away. I get you. I hear you. <laughs> but I also understand what it means to be a leader in the 21st century. Which so means, how about you shut what the mean, fuck yeah, up? What, what it means to be a leader is to fucking tell people to suck on this. Yeah, we told Iraq to suck on this, and now you have to tell your own rest of populations to suck on this. Yeah. and that's that's the insane <laughs> hollowness in the center of all of these guys, all of these elite pundits who talk about like macroeconomic shit and foreign policy stuff is at the end of the day, they will always have a paragraph where they say, yeah, there's a reason that people are uh, upset with these institutions. There's a reason that there is a crisis of legitimacy, but at the end of the day, we're in charge for a reason to shut the fuck up. Like the, and the the thing is, is, but that does not help you. That doesn't, I mean, no one's going to find that convincing. I mean, none of these people read your shit. Thomas Friedman is not, isn't running for office anywhere. So he he can tell people. He's just, he's just telling the elites who have to like, yeah, deal with this, he, this he's giving anger. them he's giving them a script exactly. so that they can say things like i understand yeah. your grievances I feel your pain <laughs> yeah right. exactly right but he goes here um i i get what it means to be a leader in the 21st century <laughs> and it sure doesn't mean asserting your sovereignty over all other considerations or breaking out of the giant eu market where the uk sends over 40 percent of its exports without a serious national discussion of the costs and benefits this is my favorite part he goes what do the most effective leaders today have in common? <laughs> they wake up every morning and ask themselves the same questions. What world am I living in? <laughs> is, are, is that the most effective leader or the most senile one? Yeah, do I smell, uh, per- where, do where I smell toast? <laughs> where Who are I? my grandchildren? <laughs> <laughs> well, what day is it? Why is my left arm numb? <laughs> he goes, they wake up every morning and ask themselves the same questions. What world am I living in? What are the biggest trends? <laughs> how did I get here? <laughs> what are the biggest trends in this world? And how do I educate my citizens? What are the biggest citizens? trends in this world? <laughs> Tamagotchis <laughs> are coming back. And how do I educate my citizens about this world and align my policies so that more of my people can get the best out of these trends and cushion the worst? Look at that. That's he's saying. And he's like, you like wake up and you like you jack into like the global capitalist hive supercomputer that tells you what's happening. And then your job is just to sell it to your idiot rube 
of uh, 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 citizens. <laughs> like, like, there's you, no you, changing anything. They have no control over their destiny. You don't even have control over everything. You are completely at the at the mercy of this machinery. No. and your job is to is to pitch it to people to yeah. prevent them from tearing the whole thing down. Yeah, exactly. Like the most effective leaders are the ones who can, you know. Oh, craft a narrative so that the shitheads who like live in their yeah. country will have you know understand the real cost benefit and yeah. you know have cushioned the blow of telling them that um, in fact they all have to accept a much dramatically lowered standard of living. Yeah. But I, I love the idea about like the, the first thing they think about when they wake up every morning. What world am I living in? And I just had an image reading that of Mohammed bin Salman just with like the Victorian sleeping cap on <laughs> and then like just eyes, <laughs> eyes open, bolt upright, eyes glowing, real shit. What world am I living in? What trends can I uh, think about today? How many falcons <laughs> am I going to buy today? <laughs> yeah. How many gold-plated falcons am I going to purchase? But I'm, I mean, I'm I'm imagining like one of these guys waking up one morning and reading about like the Juicero. <laughs> oh, a Wi-Fi enabled juicer. That's where things are going today. All right, let's do it. I mean, I, I, does he doesn't name who the most effective? No, of course not. Because I, he, I, he probably is. He's probably thinking of Angela Merkel or something. But the real answer is like Erdogan and fucking Netanyahu, yep. B, uh, MBS, and Putin. Like and those guess, are the actual most effective leaders. And guess what they're country. using to paper over yeah. the cost benefit analysis? <laughs> yeah. Hardcore insane nationalism. And violent uh, <laughs> yeah, and violent warfare. repression. Yeah, and war. The, both internal and external. <laughs> yeah. So God, it just it keeps getting better. This is just such vintage for this is like he's really he's he's given us the hits here. So he goes, What world are we living in? For starters, we're living in a world that is becoming so interconnected. Oh, and then, <laughs> are we living in the future we always dreamed of? Yes, indeed. Thomas! Yes, indeed we are. And this is my favorite part. He goes, we're living in a world that is becoming so interconnected. And then he goes here in, 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 like in dashes. Thanks, thanks to digitization, the internet, broadband, mobile devices, the cloud, and soon-to-be 5G wireless transmissions. And I just love this because I was like, Wow, just Tom is really padding out the word count yeah, in this exactly. call. You just said the internet six times, yeah. dude. I, I'm surprised that he didn't throw in information superhighway. That's a lot more syllables. Uh, uh, massive multiplayer online role-playing games. Uh, Fortnite. Apex Legends. Chat forums. Something awful. Uh, 4chan. 8chan. And he goes that we are becoming interdependent to an <laughs> unprecedented degree. Again, it, does Thomas Friedman have an editor at the New York Times? No, they just no, they like, don't edit. Yeah, him. they don't edit. I'm just like, well, you've been turning in the same fucking yeah. column for 15 yeah. years now. It's dude. just it's just that common commercial. Yeah. Every single one is just the fucking common and commercial. And he goes, um, in this world, growth increasingly depends on the ability of yourself, your community, your town, your factory, your school, and your country to be connected more and more to, uh, of, to the flows of knowledge and investment uh. and not just rely on the stocks of stuff, okay? So in the interdependent, interconnected world, you have y- your school, your factory, your town, your government needs to think about flows, not stocks, and he goes, over centuries, notes John Hagel, who currently co-heads Deloitte's Center for the Edge. How is that a real thing? The Center for Edging. It's the Center for Edging. The Center for the Edge. We have never nutted in this building, and we never will. The, 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 guy who, the guy who co-heads the Center for Edging says business has 
quote, been organized around stocks of knowledge as the basis for value creation. The key to creating economic value has been to acquire some proprietary knowledge stocks, aggressively protect those knowledge stocks, and then efficiently extract the economic value from those knowledge stocks (laughs) and deliver them to the market. The challenge in a more rapidly changing world is that knowledge stocks depreciate at an accelerating rate. In this kind of world, the key source of economic value shifts from stocks to flows. <laughs> it's the interconnected, interdependent, cloud-based world is experiencing a heavy flow at the moment. <laughs> oh, I got to get that knowledge flow and not those knowledge stocks. Oh, I, I'm, short, I'm shorting the knowledge stocks. What does any of this mean? It's I gibberish. have no clue. These all, I'm, a, I'm convinced that every one of these groups, these things, all these think tanks, like not a, part of it is, yeah, they, 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 they it's their court, uh, Court ideologues, court uh, you know economists who are there just to justify in the minds of uh, of the billionaires of the, of the elite what, why what they're doing is right. But I think also it's just a make work program for their idiot nephews and stuff. That's who works at the center for yeah, edging. exactly. Yeah. It, it's it's like it's like a wonk version of like a handbag line for your bored third wife. So I'm, I'm skipping ahead here. Just, the, uh, it's just it's, There's even more drivel that's not worth <laughs> reading. He goes, the wisest leaders also understand that all the big problems today are global problems, and they only have global solutions. I mean, by definition, the big <laughs> problems would be global, since that's the goes, largest unit. And I am talking about climate change, trade rules, technology standards, and preventing excesses and contagion in financial markets. Pretend to put Contagion, contagion <laughs> in financial markets. Uh, oh, the, like you got stocks in my bonds. I got bonds <laughs> in your stocks. Uh, the Nasdaq took a beating today after a bird flu outbreak. <laughs> All the uh, traders. You, you call your your broker and you say, "I'm sorry, your portfolio has AIDS." <laughs> <laughs> Have <laughs> uh, you checked the T cell count on the bond markets lately? It's bad. He goes here, um, uh, if your country wants to have a say in how those problems are solved and your country in your country's name is not America, Russia, China or India, you need to be part of a wider coalition like the European Union. The UK membership in the EU has given it an outside vo- outsized voice in world affairs. Again, I would like Britain to use more of their indoor voice yeah. in world affairs. Yeah. I mean, you're sorry, buddy. Uh, be nice. After World War Two, you great. can just sort of, you know, bye. Yeah. But oh, and it goes here. Um, and there's one more thing the best leaders know: a little history. Trump is fine with a world of competitive European nationalisms, not a strong European Union. So is Vladimir Putin. <laughs> so it seems are the Brexiteers. How quickly they've all forgotten that the EU and NATO were built to prevent the very competitive nationalism that ran riot in Europe in the 20th century and brought us two world wars. Sarino too- was built to counter the Soviet Union. It wasn't built for that. <laughs> and they hired a bunch of Nazis to staff it. Jesus Christ. <laughs> that, that's, called, that's called knowing a little history. Let's put on our history caps here. So he goes, sorry to be so despondent, but I went to graduate school here on a Marshall Scholarship from the British government, was married here, and started as a journalist on Fleet Street in London. I like the place, but this is not the reasonably competent British government I grew up with. <laughs> You know, the, these aren't the guys who where Anthony Eden did a bunch of poppers and tried to invade Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's being led by a ship of fools, a conservative party block that is now radical in its obsession with leaving Europe, and a Labour Party that has gone Marxist. Oh, okay, thanks for that. <laughs> can't thanks have that, that. Can't have that happen. If the people here can't force their politicians to compromise with one another and with reality, there's still a glimmer of hope that this might happen. There is going to be a crack-up of the British political system and some serious economic pain. This is scary. So concludes. And the the nationalism was the nationalized healthcare system was hanging from the door of the car. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the 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 truck driver was flashing its headlights because he was trying to warn you. Marxists were in the back of the car. It's a load of bollocks, isn't it? No, but I mean, I, I'm, I mean, I'd be okay with uh, a United Kingdom with a significantly diminished role on the yeah, they world affairs. Settle, they settle the fuck down, guys. <laughs> but um, yeah, that is Thomas Friedman, ladies and germs, about you know what it means to be a leader in the world today, which basically means doing things that are horrendously unpopular and but avoiding any kind of democratic accountability for those decisions. Yeah, it rules. Um, well, uh, I think that about does it for us today. But Derek, uh, you've got um, some new digs for your newsletter. Yeah, I'm I'm on Substack now. Uh, I've got a new site there called Foreign Exchanges. Uh, the URL is fx. The letters fx. Substack. Uh, the newsletter is five dollars a month or fifty dollars if you pay for a full year. Uh, I'm running a, a discount, twenty percent discount uh, for the rest of this month because it's my first month there. Uh, so yeah, I mean, if you've you know seen my stuff at uh, and that's the way it was, or just heard me on here, or, or you know, uh, just feel like giving me your money. <laughs> please, uh, please check it out. And uh, I would encourage you know. all our listeners to get in on the ground floor of this immense knowledge flow. Yeah, this is going to be this. This uh, this is a bear market, or no? I'm sorry, this is a bull market <laughs> of knowledge. Market for this is a bull this is, flow. If I was uh, if I was Jim Cramer, I would say you got to get in on this. Bye bye bye. <laughs> So yeah, uh, if you're if you're a fan of Chapo, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Derek's work and writing. Or if this is your first time, I would uh, very much encourage you to uh, check him out. And I will include the link to foreign exchanges in the show description. Derek, once again, thank you so much for joining us and taking us on a trip around the world. Sure, thanks for having me, guys. And before we go, we have uh, two plugs for you. Uh, this Saturday, April 6th at Littlefield, we will be appearing on stage at a live show with our friends Brett and Brian from Street Fight. They're coming to Brooklyn, and we will be guesting with them on stage uh, at Littlefield this Saturday night. So uh, please check out tickets for that. Uh, links will be in the description. And also, on May 1st, on May Day, at Housing Works in Brooklyn, we will be doing a uh, charity fundraising show that is a night of pub trivia with Chapo Trap House. We're going to be we're going to be administering a classic pub quiz to you guys. Yeah, every one of us will write one category and yes. then we will have the the teams uh, compete to see yeah, who does best. We will, yeah, five rounds, you know, I think probably like 10 questions each, but each round is a different Chapo host will be responsible for the questions. So if you think like, "Oh, I'm smart. I can kill it at trivia." True. 
you stand a good chance. But keep in mind that Felix will be doing one of these categories, and being intelligent is not necessarily <laughs> the best way yeah. strategy for answering the questions yeah. he will come up with. Uh, you really, it's, it's really a crapshoot because you don't know what he's been marinating his brain in in the media up. Because yeah. like, this is a month away. We have no exactly. idea what he's going to I mean, Right now, it's Game of Thrones and Red exactly. Fox for some reason. <laughs> but we have no idea what it's going to be. It could, we, it could be anything. It is anyone's Absolutely. game to win. It could be like a, a, a Dutch, Danish silent films. Uh, unlikely. Could, but unlikely. Yeah. But hey, was Red Fox? Did you see that one coming? Did you have that on your fucking card? Nope. nope. Uh, it could be anything. It's it could the, be the, Jacobian yeah. revenge dramas. No, it could be the, the Revengers tragedy. Felix's yeah. favorite new book. Um, no, I think it might be the, the famous Danish silent film, uh, Haxen, Witchcraft Throughout the Ages. Yes. All right. Uh, so, yeah, check out us at Littlefield, the street fight this Saturday, and then May Day at Housing Works in Brooklyn for a night yep. of pub trivia. Yep. Mine, so, I'm promising, mine are going to be very hard. That's yeah, Matt, yeah Matt's probably going to be the hardest category, but again, it's a it's a wide it's a wide it's open. It's a wide swap. Anyone can Very win. eclectic. So yeah, be on the lookout for that. Derek Davison, once again, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Bye. Bye.